0: Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today I've got my friend Chris Rowe of Rowe Hunting Resources on the line. Chris, how you doing? Doing well. How are you, my friend? Good. It looks like you guys have got another one of these uh, cyclones or whatever whatever they're calling <laughs> these crazy systems. I've never heard of the bomb cyclone until this year, and now you've got two of them. we uh, yeah, are well... in Kansas. I'm in Arizona. Tell us what's going on.
1: Yeah, well, no, I, I think it's kind of funny, too, because there's a lot of people that have noticed the same thing. And there, I, there's a weather person, a pretty prominent weather forecaster that's on uh, national news, and they even made the statement of, uh, okay, you call it a bomb. Whoever wants to use this word, bomb cyclone, it's just a, it, for lack of a, it's a winter storm. It's what it is. The jet stream has dipped low. The storm is coming out of of the north. It's going to rock down through, and here we go. It's called a winter storm, and guess what? April has a tendency to have a lot of winter storms. When I was in Colorado, and Colorado uh, turkey season usually opens up. Don't quote me on the exact date, but just it was generally that second Saturday or something in in April. It was always mid-April. And it seemed like all every single year I was hunting turkeys in the snow. We would always have an April snowstorm come barreling in and just absolutely dump on us. And then here we go—we're we're we're hunting opening weekend in some sort of snow, at least in northern uh, Colorado. So no, I look at the, i kind of laugh at it. Yeah, we're having a winter storm. No big deal, <laughs> you know. The so, the last one now. Don't get me wrong. The last one sucked. I mean, the last I, and I still to this day I, I just. I'm just embarrassed for um, the the state of media today. That that what happened in Nebraska, Iowa, um, Wisconsin, those guys. You know the, that last storm that came down through with all that ice and snow and rain and water and just the devastation that it had is is was just absolutely incredible. And they still aren't out of out of it yet. I mean, we, here at home in Northwestern Kansas. We got hit hard, but we didn't get hit hard near that, um, what, what they got up a little bit north and northeast of us. But you can see on our highways here, I mean, the, the number of tractor-trailer loads of hay and feed, just that, you know, farmers helping farmers, ranchers helping ranchers. So there's folks down in, in our neck of the woods that may have a whole bunch of hay bales sitting out in the fields that, you know, they hadn't used or probably don't need to use. They're just loading all that hay up and just trucking it north and just donating it and just dumping it off to try to help some of those folks up there that are that are struggling after that last storm. This storm, so far for us, is nothing. I mean, it, it really, it's a, it's a lot of wind. It's cold. Uh, we've got maybe, you know, they they forecasted, you know, maybe an inch and a half of snow on the level. Well, jeez, everything's horizontal right now. So, drifts, you know, in places where it's blowing sideways. Yeah, it's just blowing sideways. So yeah, they've got the highway shut literally as we speak right now. The the I seventy corridor from Hayes into Colorado is shut down because the wind is so bad, the blowing snow is so bad that it's just it has finally started to ice over and slick over the roads. But where I am at right now, it's been so warm these past several days that nothing is sticking really to the roads. It's you know we've got snow in the grass, but the grass is still sticking up through it. Uh, the winter wheat is still fine, it's just, it's just a, it's a, it's a very short-lived, intense winter storm blowing through, and it's going to be out of here in a couple days, and away we go, so this, this is a perfect day for me to be sitting inside and talking with you, because I, ca- I can't be outside, you know, hunting, normally, oh well, I've got a, the next client coming in, the next turkey hunter coming in, we literally sat and talked and said, he was supposed to be on the road today to get here, and I said, now just delay a day, and don't worry about it. So he's getting ready to come out here tomorrow, and weather's going to turn around, and we'll hit the ground rocking and rolling so you can't put some more birds on the ground. Yeah, let's
0: get a little recap of your season so far. It looks like you had a couple of archers in and, and had some success. I've been following your uh, stories on Instagram. You're doing a good job with uh, this, this turkey season, updating all of your stuff that you got going on there um for those that haven't been following tell them what's going on there in kansas with the turkey season and how the first uh couple of
1: sets of hunters went for you yeah so far it's been good um you know if anybody and and i do it shameless plug but i am i'm I'm trying to share a lot more on uh, instagram uh, facebook somewhat but definitely on instagram and youtube so by all means, people jump on there. If, they, if they're interested in what I'm doing out here and what's going on out here, give it a follow, give it a like, and, and tag along because I am. I'm going to try to do a lot more. And we were just talking a little while ago about what, we, what you and I are going to be doing down in Mexico. Yeah, if you want to just follow along and, and see what's going on, those are the platforms for me, at least, and, um, to follow along with. And so anybody that's, that's followed along with me previous knows that we had a real cold, cold fall, cold, wet winter. And then it really started into a real kind of a, a still a cold, wet spring. I mean, it just, so um, it's just been a mud season of just cold and wet. I mean, just cold and wet. And then anytime the sun came out, it'd just be a sea of mud. Well, about that third week of March, things kind of broke and, and started warming up. And so we finally started drying out a little bit to where you could actually function on roads without slinging mud everywhere. And the birds started busting out pretty darn good. Um, but then they kind of hit a plateau. So, Normally, I love hunting that. Our season in Kansas here starts April 1st for youth. and to say, uh, Yeah, for youth. Um, and then archery starts about about that of a week into season, so it's on the 8th. And then shotgun doesn't start until next week for us, about the 17th. So that first week of April is my favorite time of the season to hunt because the birds are still coming out of their larger winter flocks so you can have a flock of hens that may be 20 30 50 or more birds but there may be five to ten depending on the size there might be five to ten big mature longbeards in there and they're just going at each other's throats i mean they're they're just still working out their pecking order they haven't gotten locked down with hens yet and so you go out there and you set up in the field with a strutter and jake decoys and and hen decoys it's it's fun to have multiple birds coming into your spread and you can have activity all day long as we rolled into and that's exactly what was going on that first week of season we had a bunch of birds still traveling together it seemed like they started to break up a little bit but then they just kind of held uh in their somewhat smaller flocks to where now this past week, we find we had two or two different groups of archery. well yeah, two different archery hunters and I've got the third one coming in. Um, what we were seeing was still somewhat large flocks, so 20, 30, 40 birds in a group, multiple gobblers in with that group. Yes, you could and you can have gobblers off walking around on their own, but by and large they're still kind of with that group. Uh, but they were just going nuts. They had the la- uh, Steve, um, that was out here on opening day of turkey season, man, it was incredible. We were able to pick up. I mean, we had one of the best, best mornings in Kansas I've ever had as far as um, gobbling activity. And there had to have been over 200 gobbles that morning. We were right under the roost, but we ended up inadvertently, I, did, I shared that video about the habitat improvement that I did, in that looks like you put the area. blind right under the roost tree. Well, that was not what I. That was not the intention. And, and Stephen, <laughs> no. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. So, it? This, this, it was incredible. But it was. I was
0: watching, and they started firing off. It sounded like they were roosted on the roof of the blind. Dude, they
1: were ten That one gobbler was ten feet above the blind. The tree <laughs> that we were sitting up, sitting up against it was, a, it was a small tree. He was literally ten feet above the blind. Just rawr! Okay, so what I talked about in that video series, the, the, the IGTV series, was, okay, in this particular area, it's a, it's a known roost year in and year out, and the way the river bottom is shaped, it, it just by default, the trees, the big, gigantic, mature cottonwood trees really kind of create this horseshoe shape or maybe this uh, big, lazy oval and in the middle of it, it's generally wide open. Now, in the past couple of years, we've had some good, and I talked about all this, about the grazing regime, the floods that have come through here, and all the disturbance that has happened over the years. The fact that it's changing now, we're going to change management strategy in this particular area uh, for habitat, but also to you know min- minimize some effects that our neighbors are putting on some of the properties we're doing. So in this area, yes, over time, I would really like to encourage this particular chunk of ground to grow up into some better uh, warm season grasses will provide a little bit better cover. But in the meantime, while we're developing that, there is a value for keeping things mowed down, all right? So I figure, well, shoot, let's, let's kill two birds with one stone. No nope, pun intended. Let me do my habitat work, but let me do it strategically to where I can encourage turkeys to utilize this better as far as a fly-up area, as, as, fly, as far as a fly-down area, as far as a strut zone uh, in the protect, you know, protected timber pocket there, because the, the birds roost there. There's no question the birds roost there. And in the past, what they've been doing is flying up from inside more open timber around this little horseshoe of big trees. But I figured I was like, well, they want to be here, And their use, the way the habitat is right now, their use is scattered around this horseshoe just because of the way that everything is situated. Well, if I come in here, I mow this center portion. It's going to be the easiest place for them to fly up. It's going to be the easiest place for them to fly down. It's going to be the easiest place for them to strut and display. I'm like, bingo, let's make this happen. Well, so I, so I did that and it's awesome. It looks just, it just looks awesome. Well, I had two choices. I could either, A, put the ground blind right smack dab underneath where the typical roosting activity occurs, or I could put it at the south end of this particular piece, which, yes, it puts me out of their fly-down spot, but I'm only 100 yards from their fly-down spot, and I can see their fly-down spot. I can video them fly out, but this south end, position of the ground line, it is it's beautiful because i can access that i can slip in and get into that ground line without those birds quote unquote ever seeing me and so steve and i steve came down and while i was finishing up the habitat stuff and he came down there we just kind of pile out i said okay here's and this is what i do on all my hunts I'll sit down and powwow with the, with the hunters and say, okay, here's the situation. Here's, the, here's where the birds are. Here's how they're going to move. This is where they're going to roost. This is how they want to fly down. This is what we've got. As far as a behavior cycle, all right, what would you like to do and what would you like to see? Here are my thoughts. And, and I always try to make it personal for the hunter so that they have, you know, that they buy it. You know, they've got a kind of a say, you know, here are the alternatives. Here are the options. Which, one, which experience would that hunter like to have? And so both, and Steve and I think very, very similarly, um, he thought the same thing. He's like, well, it's better to get into that roost undetected, into the blind undetected, and we don't want the birds seeing us putting out the decoys. We don't want that noise, so let's go ahead. Yeah, I agree with that, with, with what I've done in the past. Let's put the ground blind on the south end where we can get in and out of the blind, undetected, and we get the decoys out undetected, and then when the birds fly out, we can call, hopefully get them to come our way, we'll get great video, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so that was how everything worked on on paper. You know, if we penciled it out on the back of a napkin, that's how it should have worked. (laughs) Um, The problem was, apparently, that that mowing, that habitat little improvement there, uh, ended up working a little too well, because the entire flock shifted and roosted at the south end of that and i mean literally they were right above us i we slipped in it was dead quiet so so you know jay did you lose them the night
0: before and know that they were there or not until you got in in the morning did you know they were right on top
1: of you that is a great question okay so yes i put steve on the hill up above this location and I, had, I said, I want you to listen. I said, from, you know, and I, and I gave him direction. Okay, from where you're standing, there, the birds are going to be right here. I mean, basically, I just walk. Okay, when you stand here and you hear a bird there, that's where they are. And if, they, if you hear a bird over in this direction, that's where they are. And, and I had him lined out. I said, you sit here. You roost here. I'm going to go to a different property, and I'm going to roost a separate set of birds to see if I can locate them. And, and we'll touch on this one more detail here in a second. So I went to a different property. He stayed there. Well, the weather system that we had, literally, I was in ground zero on, there should have been more than 100 birds around me within earshot. Steve was right above this particular roof spot, and there, ha- there was, in the past, 30 to 50 birds in there. I heard zero gobbles that night. Steve heard one, and it was like right when it was so dark that he couldn't see trees. I mean, it was so dark he couldn't see trees. He couldn't see lay of the land. All he had, really had was a direction. Yes, there was one gobble, and it sounded like it was south of me. So we knew the birds were there, but we had no idea how many. Are they scattered? Are they in one tree? Where, so no, we, we knew the birds were in the quote-unquote roost site, but we had no idea where specifically, what trees specifically they were in within that roost site. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So when we got up that morning, we got up early and I said, listen, we've we got a long walk and I want it dark. And so we got in there, we started it we you know, as as it, best laid plans. I think I've learned my lesson. If I, if I say I want to leave at like 5 a.m., I just need to set the timer and say, okay, we're going to leave at 445 because I know I'm always going to be about 15 minutes late, it seems like, when I'm mobilizing. So we're about 15 to 20 minutes later than I wanted. So by doing so, by the time we got to the ground blind, it was dark enough to where we could barely see, but we could function without headlamps. So we did not go in there with headlamps. There was just a little sliver of light on the horizon, I would have liked to have been in there a little bit earlier, but it was still too dark for me to see anything in the trees. And quite honestly, I really wasn't paying attention to the trees because I wasn't expecting them to be right above the of the blind. So we get to the blind, dump all our gear, just dead set. We're doing everything right. We're just dead quiet. We're just absolute silent. Slip in. Now this particular blind is a uh, is the old Primos Dark Horse blind. So it does have a zipper door. So. Set my stuff down, take the vest off, get the camera tripod over. We're, you know, Steve is, you know, we're we're grabbing the decoys. As soon as I grab those decoys, first bird cuts loose, and he gobbles, and he's like sixty yards away, up in the tree above us. And I'm like, both of us, both Steve and I, had the exact, you know, you just one of those. Oh Oh, boy, crap. Because now, and and hindsight being 2020, and I told Steve this later. I said, you know what? Hindsight 2020, and I'm, I'm I'm actually thinking this may be the case in the future for me. I don't know. I've got to test it. But if that happens again, I don't think I'm even gonna put decoys out. Sure. Because I, I I did go ahead and try. I'm like, all right, just give me the because he picked up the D S D Jake strutter and I and he had a lay down hand and I said, Give me the strutter, give me the Jake. Give me the lay-down hand. We're going to do a, an abbreviated kind of a small um, whipping boy setup. Let's just go, and I just boom, 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 put the decoys out, slip back in the in the ground blind. We get in the ground blind, and again, we're we're dead dead silent as dead silent can be, as, as much as you can with all that equipment. And then you and you and I—if you know, anybody who's messed with ground blinds before—the zippers. Each ground blind manufacturer is going to have a different zipper. So the Primos dark horse the double bull dark horse actually had a, a pretty decent zipper so if you grab the inside and outside you know, little tag ears on that zipper and you kind of muffle the sound you can slide that zipper closed quietly slowly and quietly and so we got the, the door closed where i thought it was pretty quiet got in the blind got everything set up we're still being quiet and then oh here we go that The first bird of the morning, he starts going, and, I mean, he starts going. And, I mean, he just he's just rocks, bam, bam, bam. And then I'm, the ones off to our right start rocking. And I'm like, okay, well, the ones off to my right front are where they are supposed to be, but they're kind of a little closer to us. That's not bad. That's okay. We can deal with that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, if this first bird saw me, not a big deal. Because if he flies out the other way, that's fine. I've got these other ones to my right that they have no clue that I'm here. Well, that was short lived because as soon as they let that they let loose the one above me or the one above us let loose and then we knew at that point it was it was probably gonna be over. I mean, we were literally directly under the entire flock of birds. And again, like I said, literally that bird that was above us was probably ten feet above the blind. I there had to have been more than 200 gobbles that morning, <laughs> um, just just constant, just nonstop. And the hens just made a couple little peeps, but it, the, the gig was up. I mean, they, they flew out, they pitched out, and they flew away from us, landed out to our left, and just hit the ground and just headed right out to one of the food plots, one of my uh, winter wheat plots. Do you think they saw you or heard you, those Absolutely. Birds? Absolutely. Yeah. Not, there's no question. One thing, and I guess let's just tackle that a minute because I think that was one of the questions that came in to me a while back was, well, really, how good is, is turkey vision? And I think you and I talked about it real briefly that um, somebody had asked, you know, do, do turkeys see color? And, you know, if you've been around turkey hunting for long enough, you know, you, you maybe kind of laugh at that. You're like, who the heck's asking if turkey? Yeah, of course they Well, there's a lot of new folks, you know what I mean? There's there's people new to turkey hunting that may not know some of these, what other people consider a basic information. But, yes, turkeys do see color. They see just as good as we do. I think they see better than we do when it comes to detecting motion and very fine acute detail. If you think about their whole life life structure and their cycle, you know, they need bugs. They, you know, they're eating bugs these small seeds. And so a small bug or a worm moves under the grass they, it, for survival, they need to be able to see that, detect it, and just bam, jump on it. They've got to have a fast reaction time. So yes, their vision, as far as its acuity, as far as picking out detail and movement, I've heard people say that's on par with what hawks and eagles are, as far as bam, they'll they'll pick up movement instantly, and they can deter, you know, discern very very small fine detail very quickly. But what people, I think, overlook is the fact that they have both rods and cones in their eyes, and rods and cones are what dictate how your vision is. Rods and cones separate some although you know, the cones are picking up the color vision. Rods are picking up the, the kind of low light, black and white type of vision. Well, they have eyesight that is, I think, just as good as ours is in low light. I think they can see just as good as we can in those early morning hours. And so if you can see, they can see. But here's the thing. They're up in a tree looking down. Now, if it's open habitat, like we have, and you have light-colored vegetation or leaf litter on the ground, like we had in that area, depending on the camouflage that you're wearing or what you're carrying around, you absolutely can stand out like a sore thumb, and I've talked about this on uh, some of the other stuff that I've, I've done, especially on the elk mod or the, excuse me, elk mod, the turkey module and the website stuff. If you are, say for instance, and this is a perfect example. The, the camouflage that I typically wear out here is is first lights. That they're cipher pattern, which is a brown and tan modeled camouflage. It works awesome out here us in the, con- you know, cottonwood corridors and that brown and gray leaf litter. It's, it's amazing. But if I walk out across uh, an actively growing winter wheat field, which in low light looks dark, then I am a light-colored object walking across a dark-colored background. You're going to stand out, especially if you're talking about a bird sitting in a tree looking down on this. The same thing goes. It's the exact same principle as what we talk about in ground blinds. If you're if you're hunting in a ground blind that has a black interior, that's why you wear black. Because if you wear a camouflage, like if I if I wore this cipher pattern inside a, a double bull blacked out double bolt blind, it's going to shine. It's going to stand out because it's completely opposite of what the background is. Well, while I myself in my camo may have blended in from the turkeys standpoint with they look down most of the decoy bags that you have these days are what solid olive green you know maybe or mm-hmm. maybe they're a uh a, a, you know a digital camo green you know color cam they're going to be a darker can so as we came in i've got my camera it's dark my, my vest is, you know, I've got the old Primo's vest. I'm going to get a new one here in a minute or a little bit. But uh, yeah, my vest is somewhat dark. The, the decoy bags are dark. When we walked in there, we stood out like, I mean, from a visual standpoint, from a turkey standpoint, with them being right there, yeah, they saw us. And so, well, like, I mean, you know, I think there. a good rule of thumb is if,
0: if your buddy is putting up the decoys, you know, 25 yards out or whatever, and you can see him, you dang sure those birds can see them. That's, so you Always deal. keep you, that you in deal. mind. Now, you if deal. it's so dark that you can't see your buddy, but you can hear them, that's the same thing the birds. They can't see him but they can hear him and they hear them up in the middle of the night. That They're usually fairly tolerant as long as they don't see you or hear human sounds. If they just hear rustling, um, a lot of times they'll stay asleep. They won't even, you know, they, it won't wake them up and, now, granted, if they're asleep and their head's under their wing and and say there's a moon out, if, if they're not looking or their eyes aren't open and you don't wake them up, I mean, you could stand 10 feet from them and they wouldn't see you. If the, but if they wake up and they open their eyes, they, I mean, they'll pick right. you out. And, and I've found people say, oh, they'll forget about it if you sit there for 30 or 40 minutes. I'm like, no, nope. most of the birds' I hunt don't as soon as as nope. soon as it, I mean you could be in there an hour ahead of time and if you if you've clanked things or turned on a light um I had a hunter one time well, I've had it happen several times where they turn their headlamp on or get their iPhone out and turn the light on to look where they're sitting down, and I'm like, what did you just do yeah oh they yeah. They, they don't they won't care. I'm like, huh,
1: yes yeah this." Yes, exactly. Yes. Watch this. Yes, all of that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean and that's the thing is and I and I I I want to hit that point that you just made. Human sound. Yes. I always try to get in there and set up in the pitch black. And I can do if if they're hearing little rustling in the leaves and that type of stuff. Okay you know, especially out where we are. We've got possums and raccoons and skunks and deer. We've got stuff that's going to be moving around. But if you listen to how they move, it sounds natural. But if you're out there snapping sticks and, you know, I don't care what decoy manufacturer you're talking about, if you're out there with decoys and clunkity-clunk, clunk, 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 you know, trying, if you're making noise or, And this one I found out um, two years ago down there with you, uh, down in Mexico, and you just had a a recent podcast where you talked about this uh, as far as trying to get stakes in the ground in really hard, rocky environments. Like the DSD stake is a metal stake. And how many times are you having to take that stake and then grab a rock and try to pound it into the substrate out there? I mean, okay, you might be making sound, and oh yeah, well they hear, you know, they hear it down there in maybe Arizona or Mexico. Oh, there's javelina running around, or there's raccoons, or whatever. Sure, but you tell me a, a, a raccoon that goes out there in the middle of the night and starts pound, pounding a rock on a metal stake. No, it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't sound natural. So if you're clunking your decoys, that's unnatural. And if you are hunting birds that have natural predators around them, uh. In my experience, this is just my opinion, no, they don't forget about it. They go the other way. They go the other way. Do I like sitting up underneath roost and getting close? Absolutely, I do. But my rule of thumb is I do not want the birds on the roost to be able to see my decoys from the roost. And if that means I can hide behind vegetation and say, you know, later in the season here we get leaf litter, you know, leaf starts to bud out on the trees and it starts blocking their vision, great. I can sneak in a little bit closer and I can move a little bit better and not be picked off and I can, you know, they're not going to see me. And they're also not going to see the decoys on the ground because I think that's another thing that tips them off is they know when it's safe to be on the ground and when it is not. And I think... Like for us, I I went ahead and I put that decoy out, thinking, okay, maybe I'll disturb one bird, no big deal. I'm not disturbing these others. Well, now all of, all of them saw me out there putting that decoy out there, and I think they can just sit there. You know, a a, a strutter decoy, any hen decoy it's going to be a little bit darker. On especially those big strutters, they're sitting up on this up on the roost, and it's dark, and they're like what is that, I I saw some motion down below me, I heard some rustling down below me, I'm watching this rustling, now there's a big black ball out there, and the rustling just moved off to the left, and they're doing something over there, I can hear them, but what the hell is that black ball, and and they're just staring at that black ball that's down below them where they should be pitching out, and then as it gets lighter, they're like, why is there a, why is there, I don't know, it doesn't, it, it it just tips them off to where they're like, mm, I don't know if I buy that scenario. I, it doesn't look right to me. Eh, I'm just going to fly off in a different direction and play it safe. Typically, I find better success with I'm going to set up under a roost or near a roost. I like being maybe in open habitat, maybe a hundred yards or so, and I and I don't want the birds in the tree to be able to see the decoy until they fly down and we violated every ounce of that (laughs) that morning on our first (laughs) set it was it was awesome don't get me wrong i mean the the, the gobbling activity was just incredible but we didn't kill a bird on that set we didn't kill birds until we went in a different property and we had a couple midday sets where we picked up a couple lone tom well one single tom and then two times traveling together uh, during the middle of the day, and we were able to call them in point blank and, you know, like I say, call them to your toes and just put them right in, in the lap and we're able to get it done. And then the second client came in and he got here that afternoon and we just scrambled, went right straight to uh, another property where I checked a game camera and on the game camera, it showed that there was two longbeards. But... We have some neighbors that hunt next door, like right off our fence line. They put a ground blind and corn pile right off their fence line. So one picture showed two longbeards, one of really, really nice. I mean, real nice bird. And then a day went by, and then the only picture showed up was this one other uh, smaller longbeard. So I was like, well, maybe my neighbor killed it on opening day, whatever. We'll, We'll come in here and see. This property. Was the property I went to that night? I was telling you that Steve went up and he heard the one, you know, he was roosting above the habitat improvement and he heard one gobble. I'm sitting on a hilltop watching and listening to this particular property. I heard nothing. Not only did I hear nothing, I didn't see a single bird fly up. So I'm thinking, there's nothing here until I went and checked the game camera. So fast forward, when we get into the blind, I'm thinking, okay, this is this, you know, this particular individual, it was his first. He's bow hunted a little bit, but this is going to be his first animal with a bow. Period. Let alone his first turkey, but this is going to be his first birth, first animal. Period. So, as a beginner, I wanted to I wanted kind of a slam dunk scenario. I I said I tell you what, we're going to go climb into this ground blind because the ground blind is right where they want to pitch out. It's right where they fly up. They are going to be here. There's just no question about. It. They are going to stand. 15 yards in front of the blind, period. These birds are off in the field. They have no clue that we're here. We're going to slip into this ground blind. We're going to put out the, just the jake decoy and lay down hen, maybe another hen, staged to where it looks like they're getting ready to fly up. When these birds come over, they're going to walk right down in our lap, and it should be good because we've got one gobbler. We know we've got probably a couple hens. It should be a nice, calm, controlled atmosphere to where, should be able to walk this guy through the shot process and make a good shot. Well, yeah. What my scouting did not reveal and what the game camera did not reveal was there was probably 30 to 40 birds in that flock with five or six big long beards, a couple jakes. I mean, there was a flock that was – I was not expecting it. And so when they came over the hill and it started – it was one of those situations where it was just chaos. So here we are in a situation where we've got a pie, like 20 plus 10, five or six big longbeards, and two, what I classify kind of as those bully Jakes, those Jakes that are just super hyper-aggressive. It was just chaos. Jake's beating up on each other. Jake's pushing around longbeards, longbeards fighting each I mean, we had two longbeards in that group that just, they just went from long beard to long, just gobbler to gobbler to gobbler and just beating each other up, just pounding the snot <laughs> out of each other to where they would circle through. It was kind of like this rotation. They would circle into the decoy spread, and we'd get ready. Okay, get ready. Get yeah, you, should, you know, typically they come into the decoys. They're either going to engage the decoys or they're going to stop and strut around the decoys. There, there's going to be a certain time often where that bird kind of settles. You know what I mean? where he you know, mm-hmm. kind of comes up and pushes against the decoy, and then he pauses and stands there and postures over the decoy. Or maybe he just comes in and he struts and he stands there. No, that none of that happened. I mean, they they just, between the jakes and the long, they just would not stop moving. And so that's where, and, and I sent you that little somewhat video clip, and I posted it on Instagram, the slow-mo of that, the slow-motion uh, stop video of, of the shot. He finally got it. You know, the first shot he made on a on a bird was like 22 yards, but it was a you know he had he had been at full draw for a little bit longer than what I wanted. Uh, So his first shot got excited. He just took he just shot wide and just harmlessly shaped some uh, saddle feathers off the bird. Uh, That bird just kind of spun around, went down the trees, came back out, went out and continued to fight all the other gobblers out there. And then the second gobbler that came in that he that we ended up recovering. Um, it came in beautifully. Um, I think, you know, as me being a, an experienced individual, I know that we had more time than what the hunter felt. Um, and this was one of those situations, and Jay, I think you, you could talk about this as well. When you're dealing with taking other people out and you have different, um, abilities, let's just say abilities and comfort levels, Experience there's a fine line, there's a, there, yeah, there's a fine line on coaching them through the process versus providing way too much information into and, and where you overwhelm them. You know what I mean? To where right. you, you've got to give them the information and then let them process it and let them handle it. So I, I did that, and he made a good shot. Left and right, the, the the left and right was perfect. He just shot low. I think he tried to peek over, you know, treat, just tried to peek when he shot, and he shot low. Um it wasn't a good hit. We were able to recover that bird the next morning, but uh, it was just it was just utter, utter, utter chaos. And so I think we are in a situation now where once this weather breaks, I think we're going to see next week to where those bigger flocks definitely bust up to where it's going to be one gobbler with a handful of hens and another gobbler over here with a handful of hens and maybe some single gobblers running around. We'll, we're, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening, but right now we are still in somewhat larger groups with birds just beating the tar out of each other, so it's
0: fun. Yeah, I mean, early season is always. I, I really like early season. There's there's parts of early season that I really like. There's parts obviously that are challenging, but it, it can be said for the middle and the end of the season. Um, I want to remind people that are listening if you haven't heard, Chris and I did a seven-part series where we got probably seven, eight hours, maybe more worth of um, turkey talk, and it's, I, I don't have the episodes in front of me, but uh, a handful of episodes ago, uh, the uh, we went through everything. So, it, you know, if you like what you're hearing here and didn't listen to the seven-part series, go back, uh, you know, a handful of uh, podcasts ago, and you'll find a bunch of more uh, info that Hang on a second, Chris. Yeah. Anyway, we recorded a bunch of different uh, episodes on Turkey Talk, and we covered all sorts of strategy and stuff. So if you like what you're hearing, go back and check it out. Um, Chris, we... We've got a bunch of question and, uh, answer, or questions that came in. We want to do a question and answer session. Uh, I put it out on Instagram, and so we've got a bunch of questions in. Uh, before we get to that, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com Insider. Cody Nelson, my friend, is the optics manager there. If you have any binocular, spotting scope, rifle scope needs at all, uh, contact Cody at 702-847-8747, that's extension 2. You can also send him an email at optics at gohunt.com. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting. You can find more information out about them on their website, kuyu.com, that's K-U-I-U.com. That is the, all the gear, uh, ultralight hunting gear that I wear, whether it be uh, the camel clothing, backpacks, uh, all of the gear that I wear on my hunts that you see on my Instagram page, kuyu.com. Go check it out. Uh, I also want to thank Canyon Coolers based right out of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you use the J. Scott 19 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount. Uh, I want to thank them for their sponsorship, phonescope.com. Use the J. Scott 19 promo code. You're going to get a 10% discount, and on XMAPS, uh, dot com. If you use the jscot 19 promo code, you're going to get a 20% discount. Chris, I wanted to bounce back to something. And before we get into the question and answer, I wanted to bounce back to something you said about where you don't want the birds in the tree to see the decoys. And in country where it's open, where you have big open fields and what have you, Sometimes if the birds are in the tree line, it's kind of difficult to do your setup without the birds in the tree to be able to see the decoy. In those situations, uh, I know there's people listening thinking, well, we've got open fields and then we've got timber. How would you recommend them use either the contour of the land or or what would you use so that when they're up in the tree, they can't see the decoys? Because what you're saying is, they see the decoys out there for a long period of time before they fly down. The decoys aren't moving, something's yeah. not right, and we're going to fly away. So you want to make it where they're up in the tree and they hit the where you think they're going to fly down, and then they see the decoys.
1: Talk about that. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. So, but let and let's talk about it from a standpoint of different parts of the season. So let's say early, for anybody that, that hunts in, Habitats where there's a lot of deciduous, you know, deciduous trees. Where early season, maybe you have no leaves on the trees. Yeah, I'm either I'm going to do a couple. I'm going to think about a couple things. Number one, if I know that group of birds and I know how they pitch out typically, and how and where they go typically, then I will oftentimes just put some distance between me and that roost and where they're going to fly out. So maybe I'll set up 100, 150, 200 more yards away to where I've got some distance between them and and the setup to where, yes, they're going to pitch out, and maybe they don't even see the decoys when they pitch out. It's not until they pitch out, mill around, do their own thing, and then start walking in their normal direction, and then that, oops, they come over a hill and, wait, oh, there's a group of birds. What? With these decoys here. There's a new group of birds here. What the heck are they doing right in our pass? So sometimes just a little bit of a space and distance can help because typically the further away you get from, it, especially if you're on the same... Okay, so my perspective in this discussion right now, I'm my habitat typically in these somewhat long, skinny corridors, these river bottoms, creek bottoms where the habitat is linear, Ish, all right. So I may go ahead and set up on the same side of the creek bottom that they are on, or the same side of the creek bottom that they're going to pitch out. But I'm going to be down the creek bottom or up the creek bottom, maybe a couple hundred, a hundred, hundred fifty, two hundred yards or so, because it's in the same plane. Uh, they're in the same kind of orientation. Now those birds are up on the roost, but they're looking lengthwise down the corridor. There's all sorts of other branches in the way. There may not be leaves on the branches, but there's a pile of other branches kind of messed up obscuring their vision to where it just, a little bit of distance sometimes puts more branches between their eyeball and your setup to where they really can't, your setup very well or i'll set up around a corner or a little bend in the creek to where yeah there's so many trees and so many branches and so many limbs and everything else in their view plane that they cannot see effectively where those decoys are on the ground however when they pitch out now they're below those branches They're looking along the, you know, just from a three-foot standpoint, two- to three-foot standpoint of the ground. They're looking laterally. Now they can see it's wide open along the meadow. It's wide open along the the ag field. It's wide open along the pasture, whatever. They can see those decoys at that point. So oftentimes when it's early, I'm going to put some distance between me and where those birds are. And use the t- same thing with, you know, bends in the creek or whatever. Maybe I'm closer, but the way the creek is bent, I can go around the corner and I can just put more obstruction between their eyeball and my setup. Terrain. Also, if I know that they're going to pitch out and land, if they're going to land on, you know, say, for instance, they're going to land on an open slope, maybe what I'm going to do is put my decoys up on this little tiny rise to where when they do finally pitch out, they can see my decoy especially if I don't know which direction they're going to go say they pitch out from the river bottom and they could go left or they could go right and it's, a, and it's a 50-50 coin toss in that case I'm going to want to try to hide my decoys from them when they're in the tree but as soon as their little feet hit the ground I want them to be able to see my strutter or my Jake or or those decoys to where it gives them the incentive to say oh we need to go that way same thing goes with um, people that are hunting in some of that open Ponderosa Pine habitat. You could have very similar situation in the mountains or, you know, if you're hunting Merriams or whatever. Yes, Ponderosa Pine has the needles on the, on the branches, but some of those pines are really, really open where those birds are roosting. Same thing goes. I'm going to try to put more tree limbs between me and where those birds are roosted, but I want when those birds hit the ground, I want them to be able to see where those decoys are if I don't know which direction those birds are going. If I know the direction that they're going, I don't really worry about it as much because I know as soon as they get close, as long as I can set up within their path of, of general activity and, and movement travel, they'll, they'll see my spread and hopefully I can my calling and, and my, the realism of my spread sets it up and, and they want to come in from there. But as we go later in the season, we have more and more leaves on the trees, that allows me to get a little closer, closer, closer to where, yeah, I may be in the situation that we were in with Steve the other day, if those trees had been fully leafed out, quite honestly, maybe I could have gotten away with it because there's just so many leaves on the trees that they're they're completely blocked and it's so dark, you know, from their perspective, everything's dark now to where they didn't see anything. They pitch out and land. Oh well, somebody must have beat me to it, and someone must have landed before me, and I didn't hear them. It's not as big of a deal. So, if you're hunting in places where there's a lot of leaves on the trees, or you're in places where, say, um, and I have not personally hunted here, but say down southeast where you've got some of those pine plantations, where those pine, those pine, the the pine boughs are, are very and the stems are very close together, to where the birds are buried up in those pine boughs. Maybe you can creep in and crowd that roost site a little bit closer to where they can't see you. But, yeah, I just do not want to be seen from the tree. I want them to see me when they hit the ground.
0: Let's talk about some of our guys that aren't using decoys and, quite frankly, aren't doing a lot of calling. Let's talk about – and then we got to get into the questions um, – <laughs> You know, guys that are saying, listen, I, I want to kill birds. Like, I haven't killed a bird in three years. I want to get in there close to them, off the roof." Talk about, you know, at that point, do you want to get where they're going to land so when their feet hit the ground, you're in shooting position? Talk a little bit about that.
1: Well, there you go. I think you just summed it up. I mean, yeah, that, it's, that's literally it. And especially some of these folks that are, you know, I think you're talking about some of the guys that are, you know, whether you're talking about guys and gals that are hunting from the southeast, whether or, you know. Uh, maybe some folks that you, you hear this all the time for the folks from Mississippi or Louisiana or Alabama or even some of the folks in Pennsylvania, you know, oh, I, I hunt super call shy birds and, and these birds don't want to work the call and they don't want to work decoys and, and these are, yeah. Okay, these are the guys and gals that are out there trying to develop a 70-yard shotgun, you know what I mean? You know, yeah. I mean, there's all.
0: still even people that hunt Merriams that just they're just not good at turkey hunting yet, and they're like, "Hey, man, I want to kill some birds." What suggestion would you be to them of setting up? You know, getting in those areas. We're trying to figure out where are the birds going to pitch down, and I yeah. want to be as close to that as I can so I can get
1: my bird. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing. Yeah, it, to where a if that is if that's the case then I absolutely advocate you spending some money and and taking some time with your shotgun and your choke setup and your ammunition that you use and develop a system that can reach out there and touch someone. Number one, you, so you can do a 40, 50, 60 yard shot if you need to effectively. But that's exactly it. In some of those cases, if you just want to kill a bird, some of your, sometimes the best thing that you can do is literally slip in there and make like a hole in the dirt and, you don't want those birds to think anything else, so figure out where they're roosting, okay, especially if you can find birds that are consistent roosters. Like for, you know, for us in, in uh, for Rio Grande turkeys in Kansas, they like to typically roost in the same general area each night, if not the exact same trees night after night and year after year. I know Merriams are the same thing. Merriams don't, in my experience, don't have as much fidelity to maybe the exact same tree, but I do know they like to they like to roost and hang out in the morning on the exact same ridges day after day or year after year. And they might move across the landscape in a in a kind of a lazy pattern. So like you know, and it does day one they're on this ridge, day two they're on that ridge, day three on this other ridge, day four guess what they're back on the the first ridge, and they just kind of move around, patterning. Where they roost is huge. Once you figure out where they like to roost, my second thing is figure out which way they like to pitch out. So in Kansas here, if the terrain is flat and all things, say there's winter wheat on one side of the creek bottom or or the tree corridor and there's winter wheat on the other, and you have light winds, a lot of times, I will set up on the side where the wind is coming from. That they will pitch into the wind and just sail out into the field if all things are created equal. However, I know on one particular roost site, I'm thinking on one of our properties right now, the, on one side of the creek bottom is a hill. On the other side of the creek bottom is a low, flat, wide-open field. They love to pitch into the hill. It's a shorter distance doesn't matter what the wind is doing. They like to just pitch right out and land on the hilltop. So if I know that they like to pitch out a certain way, I'm just going to get in there. I'm going to have a good shotgun that can reach out and touch someone. I'm going to figure out where they're roosting. I'm going to figure out which way they want to land. And I'm literally going to slip in there, get as close as I can, sit down, be quiet, shut up, don't say a word. I might not even put a decoy out just let them land and do their thing and just sluice them when a bird comes in range and touches their feet to the dirt. I mean, literally, sometimes the best thing that you can do is not do anything at all other than just pull the trigger.
0: Good stuff. Let's dive into some of these questions. let uh, see. Taking my son on the OTC hunt in May because he wants to go So he's talking about, Chris, I believe, the Arizona over-the-counter hunt in May because he wants to go. I've never hunted turkeys, biggest piece of advice. Um, So it sounds like we've got a youngster, sounds like we've got, you know, fairly inexperienced, but they want to go. I'm going to answer this. Chris, you can um, get ready with your answer. First of all, it sounds like the kid wants to go. That's half the battle. So what do you want to do? Make it as fun as you possibly can, whether that means, I don't know how, I don't know how old he is, you don't stay here in the, in the question, uh, but if it means, you know, give him the keys and let him drive around on the two-track roads and, you know, get to learn how to drive, great. If it means, you know, set up a tent and make sure you bring s'mores and, you know, cook over an open fire and let him enjoy all of that, Great. Um, as far as being on the first hunt, the more gobbling that you can get him into and seeing and hearing turkeys, even if you guys don't get one, to me, that's a win. So you've got great camping situation. You've got fun driving with dad, you know, if he's, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, And, you know, I'm, I'm not advocating breaking the law, but Um, If you're out in the middle of nowhere, letting them experience, you know, getting behind the wheel. Um, And then, you know, get out and get up early and try and get out there and stop the vehicle and listen for turkeys gobbling and then try and work your way towards their position. And if anything else, plant yourself by a tree and at least listen to the gobbling. Let the kid experience turkeys up in a tree going nuts um obviously listen to the seven part series that chris and i did on turkey hunting and you'll pick up a bunch of tips in depth from you know all the different scenarios from early morning setups to midday to roost setups how to roost them and what have you but anytime you're dealing with kids make it as fun as possible don't yell at them you know, make it easy for them. Keep them warm. Um, you know, the more engaged they can be, the better Better time they're going to have and better chance you're going to retain them to want to come back next year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Chris? The only thing that I would add, uh, add to that is, because uh, I agree, being able to hear them on the roost and just going nuts is awesome. However, anybody that's hunted turkeys for a, a length of time knows that you do a couple of days – back-to-back of getting up at three thirty or 4 o'clock in the morning goodness gracious you get tired don't hesitate to take naps during the day yeah and don't forget the fact that in most of the in arizona can you shoot can you hunt until sunset yeah okay so midday hunts quite honestly don't be afraid to say hey you know what if they're tired and they're like oh i don't really want to get up this morning okay that's fine if the birds are going to be nearby, maybe just let them sleep in. You get up. You go listen and just see if you can hear where the birds are, are gobbling from. Now you know where they where generally they are. Let, let them sleep in and then just go do a midday hunt. Just have some fun to where they're, they're rested. And, and you you said it too. You want especially young kids keep them warm, keep them fed and hydrated, and keep them stimulated. So however you need to do that. So midday hunt sometimes can be awesome, you know, but yes, I agree, Jay. It needs to be fun. Have fun. This is their hunt, not your hunt. It's their hunt. So if you spend 10% of your time actually hunting and 90% of your time just going out and exploring and walking and having fun and having a good conversation and laughing and goofing around and screaming, in their mind, that's going to be an awesome hunt, and and I and I think Jay, you and I, and and oh oh oh, do not, do not, do not put your value set on your children too soon. And I truly mean this. And and what do I mean by that? Most kids don't give two flips about how long a beard is. They don't even know right. what that really, what value that has at all. So if that, if your first set has a Jake come walking in there, and and your kid is having trouble breathing because they're so excited and they want to shoot a Jake, pull the trigger, and you better be just as excited as they are for their first bird, as if they killed a, a eleven inch beard, you know, triple beard. Inch and a half spur monster. Okay, and I had this absolutely driven home to me one of the first years that I really started doing the stuff out here in Kansas. We a uh, uh, young kid killed his first bird, and it was a bird. I, I probably had a nine ten inch beard. I mean, it was an awesome bird. It was a bird that any one of us seasoned veteran hunters would love to kill. That was his first bird. So when he went, when we went back out to get his second bird. I put him in a spot where we had a pile of different gobblers in there. But there was also a group of jigs. Long story short, the birds start coming. And I'm looking at this bird out in the field, and it's got a legit 11-plus 11, 11 inch beard. It is gargantuan. And you could see the spurs coming through. The, I mean, he was, a, he was a legit booner turkey if there ever was one. And so, of course... My eyeballs are going to that bird, and Dad's eyeballs are going to that bird, and I'm working my butt off, calling, being creative, trying to get that bird to come. And He's slowly working his way. He's coming. Meanwhile, a group of jakes comes running down the field right into our decoy spread, starts beating the pit out of the decoys. Now, this kid has already killed a a three-year-old bird, beautiful, mature bird, and there's a gargantuan tank of a bird out in the field still coming our way, and I hear him say, are, "Are these birds legal?" And I answer him, "I'm like, yes, they are, but we've got a bigger, but we've got a really good bird out here in the field. Just hold on, okay. But can I shoot these birds? Yes, you, you yes you can. But hold on, there's a bigger bird out there. He goes, and a couple seconds goes, by. But 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 these are legal. I can shoot these, right? And at that moment, I went, it was like a light bulb. Somebody just flipped the switch. I'm like, yes, you can. And I said, if you want to shoot one, I said, then let's go ahead and get set up. And, I mean, that shotgun was up. He had his cheek down. He had a bead. And I said, well, just wait until one step's clear. He's like, okay. And I said, that one's clear if you want it. Boom! I mean, it was that fast. He dumped his second bird, and it was a Jake. And he was... He went into orbit. He was so excited that he came out and he tagged out and he got two birds on his hunt. Where his brothers and sisters, you know, they I think one of them got a, a, got their two birds and the other one only got one or something. He was absolutely lit up, excited because he he shot a, a good bird. He shot in his mind, he shot two turkeys on a hunt. How how awesome is that? So don't let yourself get caught up into certain expectations based on your years of experience and decrease your child's experience when they're just excited to be out there, to be out there with you, and if a Jake comes in and they get excited and they want to dump that Jake, uh, absolutely just talk them through it and just let it happen and have a blast. Good stuff. Good advice. Uh,
0: This comes from Loco Cocono. It says, any tips for a pre-dawn setup when you don't know where the turkeys are roosted? Thanks. So talk a little bit about you don't have anything roosted. You don't have anything going. Um, He doesn't say whether he's hunting Miriams. I guess it doesn't matter, but what would you do if you don't
1: have anything roosted? Did, did he say Loco Coconino? Was yeah. that his handle? Yeah. Was his name? Yeah. I was thinking of Coconino National Forest, I was thinking that maybe out your way. Um, no. Well, so, I don't know. For me, I, I really I really want to know the habitat that he's in because it's yeah. all based on, it's going to be based on a couple of things. Um Goodness, if we're if we're thinking about merriams, if you don't know where they're going to be roosted, I guess if you have if you're in mountainous terrain, here's my opinion: if you're in mountainous terrain, you don't know where the birds are going to be roosted. You have no idea. I would hope maybe he has the ability to get out and scout a little bit and know the terrain that he's in and maybe how the the forest structure is set up to where there's going to be places in some you know a lot of times with Merriams in the mountains you're going to have, most of those times they they're going to be associated with ponderosa pine forests ponderosa pine forests can be very diverse where you have patches of younger pines and you can have these be, these big stands of big big honking mature you know the people call them yellow bellies of big old pumpkin trees as jack gy- gigantic enormous ponderosa pine. A lot of times, those turkeys are going to roost in and around some of those bigger pines. That doesn't mean that they're going to just nece- necessarily stay there and feed, but they're going to roost in some of those places. So, first and foremost, if I know nothing about the area, I want to find those places where those gar- this is the, where those gargantuan trees are going to be found. Then I'm going to want to know where the nearest green areas are that have the best spring green up happening. Maybe that's on a creek bottom. Maybe that's on a uh, south-facing slope that's a little warmer than, say, a north-facing slope or an east, you know, east-facing know, east ridge versus a west-facing ridge. You know, I'm going to look for those places where it's going to be greening up better. And then I'm going to find those two things, and then I want to know where's the nearest water. And if I can find a spot on the map where I have big, honking, mature ponderosa pines, I've got good spring green up, I've got water nearby, and if I can start adding, you know, okay, that right there is my, that's my, that's my entry point right there. So If I can find the big trees, good green vegetation, and water, that's where I'm going to start. Now, if I can start adding, you know, oak brush to that equation or aspens to that equation or willow bottoms to that equa- equation or shrubs. If I can add diversity to the habitat, that is where I'm going to start. And quite honestly, you get set up in the morning and you just listen. Maybe the first the first day of your hunt, if you can do all that type of scouting ahead of time, whether it's Google Earth or Onyx Maps or whether it's just going out there you know, and, and looking from a distance with, with binoculars, if I go out first thing in the morning and I'm just going to go on a blind set, I don't know where the birds are, I'm just going to go out and sit my butt on the ground and see, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to go get out there in the place where I think it's best. I'm going to sit my butt down, and I'm just going to listen. Just cold call. Start. Maybe, you know, use them. You can, people talk about locator calls. In my experience, man, sometimes Merriams do well with locator calls. Sometimes they really don't, um, you know, where some people say owl hoots work best or crows, or you know, ravens, or coyotes. You're just going to have to play with it. Some birds like certain things. I can, I can think right now um, in some places where an owl hoot will do you no good, but if you blow a coyote howler real quick, yeah, you might be able to get a response. Or a crow does no good, but an owl hooter does. You're just going to have to go out there and punt and play with it and see. Maybe you can get them to shot gobble. Maybe not, but typically I'm just going to sit down, wait for it to start getting daylight, and as soon as it starts getting pink in their eyes and where I can start seeing and I can start seeing around, the birds are starting to cheat, the robins are singing, the little dicky birds are starting to make noise. That's when I'm going to start calling a little bit lightly and just see if I can't get a response and just listen to see how the, the woods unfolds. And then as it turns daylight, if I don't hear a peep and it starts turning daylight, I still have no, no and, and the birds should be on the ground by now, and I still have nothing, well, that's when I, it becomes a scouting mission I'm going to start looking for signs. I'm going to see, am I in an area that has turkey droppings? Am I in an area that has um, tracks? Am I walking across the landscape with my binoculars? Can I see turkeys? At that point, it becomes an active scouting mission to find the sign. And once you find the sign, then you can put any of the decoy and calling stuff that we talked yeah. about.
0: And I would add, too, like, I think this question... You could take this question several ways, but I, I'm getting like I don't have anything roosted. What should I do? I would say cover country. So if you're out there uh, before light, you're trying to shock gobble with a coyote howler, which is what I would do, trying to get them to shock, make make a gobble, and then you have something to go after. You know, then the yeah. option is okay. Get out and walk ridge lines. Pick an area and say I'm going to commit to it. I'm going to I'm going to start walking and I'm going to coyote howl till I get a bird to answer. If no bird answers, I'm going to just keep moving and or use your vehicle to do the same thing. I'm going to drive, stop, get out, listen. If nothing's gobbling, it's still dark. I'm going to try and shock, okay? If nothing gobbles, I'm going to keep moving. You can either do it on foot or you can do it by vehicle. Um, Those are the two things that I'm going to do. If I don't have anything roosted the night before, I'm either going to commit to an area and say, I'm just going to get out there. I'm going to walk down the forest road or or the ridge until I hear birds gobbling, or I'm going to get to an area where I know turkeys are. I'm just going to sit. I'm going to wait until one bird gobbles, and then I'll move towards its direction, get as close as I can. Um, you know that that's what I that's what I would recommend. Um, if you don't have anything going, cover country to hear them, and once you hear them. Then you, if you know, you may not be able to get on them. Then you might come back that night and try and get as close to that situation and do an afternoon roost setup uh, for the next morning. Let's go to the next question. Uh, we've got Diaz Rocky twenty four. How much calling is too much calling when hunting pressured Merriam's on public land? I think if you sound really well, if you sound good uh you probably can't call too much you've got to really watch your human sounds and you've got to really watch your human cadences in my opinion so if you sound good and you you know you sound just like a turkey your cadence is just like a turkey i don't think you can call too much now what i think you can do too much of is drive close to the birds on the roost slam your doors while they're you know waking up and they're gobbling and they you know see your lights they know that someone is coming uh you know that they can see your headlamp uh you can call too loud you can get too close calling loudly and i think the worst thing is you know people in my opinion that call with a mouth call that really sound nothing like a turkey they think they get that they get somewhat of the cadence and they're like oh i'm great with the mouth call i'm gonna let it rip I think that's one of the worst things for merriam hunters that you can do. Uh, Chris, you're, I'm curious your opinions. I mean, I think box calls and pot calls, you, people can be make much better sounds with. Um, I've I got to be honest, half the people I hear call with a mouth call, and I would probably throw myself in that as well, have no business even using a mouth call if they want to get serious about killing turkeys. Now, you know, They've never killed one with a mouth call, and that's, you know, they want to get better. But there's so many people I know that never practice. They throw it in the, you know, on the way up to the turkey hunt, and they think they're great. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you're probably calling too much to, you know, you're, you're part of the problem is what I would say. What do you think, Chris?
1: Yeah, and, and I think it has to do with birds, and I think it has to do with the hunter pressure. Like the question said, I mean, if it's a heavily pressured area, then quality is going to be key over quantity. The, if you if you sound really great, then it will probably allow you to get away with more calling, but just it, but just more quantity doesn't translate into. Quality, You know what I mean? You, just because you, you call more doesn't mean you, you're actually sounding better or doing more good. So, yes, if it's a pressured area and you are not just awesome rocking a call, I would say probably maybe not call as much. But, and I think you nailed it too, you've got, you need, I am less worried about most people's ability to sound just awesome I'm less worried about that than I am get the cadence right and learn how and what they at what turkeys actually sound like um, that's why I put those videos on you know as far as our website you know just listening to turkey's talk and there's a way, and I agree with what you exactly said, I, when anybody's just starting out, especially turkey get a box call because it's the easiest one to learn, then go to a pot call because that's the next easiest one to learn and I mean learn it and learn good and, and, and make it to where you sound well um, and then a mouth call So, but even still, there's a right way and a wrong way to use a box and learn how to use that box effectively to get a good two-tone yelp, high to low same thing with your Um, pot call you want to have a realistic yelp you want to have a realistic cluck or purr or whatever you want to sound realistic that's huge because I think even in heavily pressured areas you could do the exact same level of calling that someone else does but if you just have a better cadence or a more realistic cadence and a more more realistic sound you're going to do better but the bottom line is going to come down to you're going to have to figure out what those birds in that area want. If you're in an area where you have a high turkey population, you probably can get away with a lot more calling simply because usually on the landscape you're going to have a lot more birds talking. But if you're in in an area where there's just a handful of birds and those birds get pressured, then I'm really going to start looking at at terrain and movement and scouting, and I'm probably going to back my calling off a lot. Okay,
0: Chris. Another question here from White Jacob. It says, if you resort to sitting water, do you still use decoys? If so, what's your setup like? For me, if I'm going to set up set up on water, I do use decoys, and I actually a lot of times I'll kind of put them down by the water, kind of naturally. How? You know, I would see turkeys, maybe a couple hens right down by the water. You know, I've done it uh, hunting in Arizona a lot for Merriam's, uh, you know, afternoon sets. Just just make it look realistic. Try and spread them out a little bit, just like you would see turkeys go to a water hole. Cr- Chris, Chris, your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I don't normally have to sit water, uh, but the times that I've done it, um, typically – if I'm going to target birds, this is just my personal philosophy, if I'm going to target birds at a water source, it's usually because it's hot and dry and they're coming to water because they, they need to. It, they need to. If it's hot and dry, I've, my philosophy, I've got two two choices, either just sit there and make like a hole in the wall and just, if, if it's a small water source and I can shoot across it, then I don't care, just. Just sit there, be quiet, wait, have some patience, don't move, and let things just naturally unfold, especially this heavily pressured area. But if it's a bigger water source to where you can't um, cover the whole thing, I typically will set my decoys near where that water is but in the shade, somewhere off to the side of that water hole in the shade where it may look like a group of birds came down, got some water, and then they just wanted to loaf and and hang out for them preen and nap and dust themselves. But they typically will often do that in the shade. So I'll just set that spread off to the side somewhere where it can be seen from the water. If any bird's going to come in there to get water, they can see that decoy spread. But it's very realistic that those birds are just loafing in the shade, off to the side, and hopefully that bird wants to come around and engage it. You can add some calling to it, obviously, but hopefully by that realistic step they can want to come around and and engage those decoys, at least get themselves in a position where they're a little closer for a shot.
0: Well, and I think that's a good point you make about the shade. I mean, always if I have the choice, personally, I'm going to always set the decoys in the shade if I ever have a chance between sun and shade. I feel like when the decoys are in the sun... Uh, birds can tell even the best decoys you know in the shade I just think it's more natural turkeys kind of like you said tend to loaf in the shade I just think it's a more natural spot for them now the only exception to that would be maybe if there was a really cold morning where turkeys are going to actually try and get out in the sun uh, maybe after it's rain to try and air out and try and dry out but If I ever have a chance between shade and sun, I'm always going to pick a shaded spot for my decoys. Um, Let's hop to this next question here. It says, East Coaster question. Are roosting habitat, or excuse me, roosting habits different with Merriam's and Gould's versus Eastern's? This is from Brad Stinson 21. Uh, I will say that I've never hunted eastern, so I can't really speak to that. The one thing I can tell you, it seems like the Merriams and Goulds uh, really use the contour of ridge lines to roost out on the ends of points. But they like to get up, they like to walk past the roost tree, or walk up in elevation and then fly across, so they don't have to exert as much energy into their roosting position. Uh, Goulds are the same way. Merriam's definitely like, you know, right off ridge lines. Uh, Chris, maybe you can speak to, to the Eastern's roosting. Um, the other thing I would say is you hit it all hit on it earlier. Uh, Rios that I've hunted t- tend to roost exactly in the same spot. If you don't mess with them, uh, Rios, uh, I would say, or excuse me, uh, Merriams, I would say, are very, very similar. Not necessarily the same tree, but definitely the same group of trees. And goulds tend to roost very sporadically wherever they end up. It seems like that afternoon they just tend to roost. They don't have any random, like, um, unless the terrain makes them roost in certain trees. If they have choices of lots
1: of different trees, they tend to just fly up wherever they're at. Yeah, and I I think in my experience, I grew up in upstate New York, and the places where I turkey hunted then, the turkeys, we didn't have a huge population, but they had general areas of activity where they, they liked to be, but they did not seem to have a very set, you know, group of trees or certain location or whatever. Now, in hilly areas, I think that's different. And I think it goes right to what you just said, Jay. So some of those people that are hunting Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and, or Virginia, you know, mountainous areas, I, I absolutely will say that, yes, Easterners are going to be lazy as well, and they're going to use the terrain to their advantage and pitch out. You know, they're going to climb up the hill and then pitch out and just fly over. Where I was, that's not the case. It was just gently rolling, and you'd have these big flats of hardwoods, and the trees that were there were big maples a lot, maybe some beech, to where a lot of the trees are all similar where the, the roost site potential is the same across the entire landscape so in my experience it didn't really matter where those birds were they just fly up you know it's kind of like what you just said with ghouls they, they just if you where you are down in mexico with ghouls there's so much oak trees down there's just so many oaks that all those oaks have the same growth style to so where there's potential roost sites no matter where that bird ends up there's there'd be up there's a tree boom i can land in it i can fly up whereas in the mountains i think for merriam's i think that's part of the reason why they do what they do there's a lot of good roost site so they might just use the same ridges but they don't necessarily have to pick the same pick the same tree whereas in out here with rio's Sometimes it is literally because the best roost tree in that area is the biggest tree, big cottonwood, whereas everything around it is a bunch of garbage. You know what I mean? So I think the habitat has a lot to do with it, but where I was in upstate New York, the easterns tended to just fly up near or around wherever they ended up that evening, and then we had to you know, locate them during that next morning to really make something happen.
0: All right, let's go to the next question here. Best broadheads for archery turkey hunting fixed, mechanical me- <laughs> fixed or mechanical. I'm gonna say, Chris, you were gonna have a really good answer for this, but my experience is mechanical for sure. Um, with as big a cutting diameter as you can get, as much expansion as you can get, open up those blades um, maybe even lower the poundage on your bow. Uh, I don't mind if the arrows actually sticks in the turkey. Um, but also consider head and neck shots. Uh, as, as, an archery taking guys, uh, Gould's turkey hunting in Mexico, I like the head and neck shot a lot more. I think it's a hit or miss. You either hit and the bird's dead, or if you miss, it's a clean miss. where I've seen so much can go wrong when you're body shooting them, and that goes back to why I like mechanical broadheads that are going to open up and really cut a big hole in that turkey. Uh, so even if you don't make a, a, a fatal wound, you can get a, a, a you know a second shot. Uh, but I would
1: highly recommend the head and neck shot. Yeah, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, uh, just just cut the if you're going to do a body shot, you want a head that's going to put the biggest biggest honking hole through them possible. Um, and, and A, people don't realize that turkeys can take a heck of a lot of impact. I mean, they, they, they can, you can send an arrow through a turkey, and if you don't break them down by hitting solid bone or break their back or pelvis, they can just flat go. I mean, just walk off and, and the last three birds, I mean, this past week I've had two hunters and three birds, and every single one was a body shot every single shot was actually pretty darn good. Well, no, I can't say that, no. The first two were money shots, where you thought, oh, that should be, that that bird should be dead right there. But they walked off, required one heck of a follow-up to get that bird on the ground. And then the last shot uh, that you, Jay, that you and I talked about, that shot didn't even look like it was going to even be remotely lethal, but because of that gigantic cutting diameter of that rage Tripan, it ended up putting the it, it ended up getting that bird on the ground. So they can take a lot of, of uh injury and suck it up. And I agree with you. If you have the wherewithal to take head headshots and neck shots, shot, by all means do so. And especially if you use like the Magnus bullhead where you where you can actually just whack and beat him in the head and lock that thing off. It's awesome. But anytime people ask me that, absolutely throw the biggest mechanical through it you can. Now, with that caveat being said, um, or let me, with that being said, the caveat I will say, uh, my first hunter this year played around with, and I'm not going to name the name, but it was a it was a mechanical head, it was a hybrid style broadhead, and up front it was a fixed blade on the end, and then it had the big mechanical blade that that deployed, but the front. Blade was one of these, you know, turkey grabber heads or these you know, jagged, you know, cut out where it looks like the, you know, like the trident prongs sticking out there. Garbage. Sorry, they're garbage because you just don't get the penetration. He shot. We, I've seen it repeatedly, and everybody that I know that has ever had clients or hunters use those, you know, turkey heads that are designed to have this, you know, real jagged. Front, you know, head on it. Well, who cares? We're neither one of us. It, it's the rage. It's the rage, tur- rage turkey. head. neither one of us is sponsored by Rage. I don't care. Um, <laughs> it's the rage turkey. It's the rage turkey. It that has that big cut-out blade in the front. with those big prongs. Garbage. I'm sorry, Rage. Sorry, garbage. Just go with a, a rage tri. If you want to shoot a rage, just go with a tripod. That's all. You, you're gonna lay them oak. That stinking jagged trident looking head on it kills your penetration and even on some hot shots i mean if steve was using this he the most recent example i have is with steve i mean he's pulling 65 70 pounds with a with a 29 inch draw length with a medium to heavyweight arrow i mean he, that's his elk setup and even then he wasn't getting great penetration when he hit you know heavy muscle heavy uh, uh wings or it he just it just No, it just didn't do the job that you you think it does. Just put a big, honking mechanical on there and just make sure your shot placement is right. And for those people that use fixed blades, there's nothing wrong with a fixed blade. But the smaller the head and the smaller the cutting diameter that you have, just understand a turkey's actual kill spot where you will recover the bird, is very small. Just because you can send an arrow through their gut pocket doesn't mean you're going to recover that bird. And even if you you shoot up in their breast somewhere or near their vitals, uh, their actual heart and lungs that's going to cause hemorrhaging is very small. So a small cutting diameter fixed blade head is absolutely devastating if you hit that small area where it's going to work. So just understand that. That's where if you're using a small fixed blade, say say for me, for my I shoot iron wheel head. If I'm going to use an iron wheel head on a turkey, I darn sure I'm going to make sure I know exactly where to hit them in the body to to go send them right through the heart lungs or break their spine, or I'm just going to go for the head shot and just be done with it. Because if I'm sloppy on my body shot, I'm just injuring birds or killing them, but they're going to run off and fly off and die somewhere else and you're never going to recover them. It says, what are some tips for hunting public
0: land merriams? Well, I think that's something both you and I have had a lot of experience with, Chris. Uh, A couple suggestions I would have are try and do a bunch of preseason scouting and find those areas that are not easy to get to. Find those areas, whether it be blocked off roads, uh, habitat areas, areas where you have to hike in away from the roads, away from where it's easy to get to. Uh, that would be kind of my number one tip. I feel like people don't put as much time into scouting turkeys as they should. They end up driving the roads, and I say get as far. Away. If you want to kill a bird every year, I say get, a, get away from those easy areas and get into some of those canyons that you have to walk into. Because a lot of times, people don't even go and explore those. Um, find, you know, the the most roadless area you can, and that's going to be where the most undisturbed birds are. That would be
1: probably my biggest tip right there. Um, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I think and a couple things popped in the head. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Number one, the stuff that we just talked about a little while ago is going to be Pertinent. the stuff we talked in that seven part series is going to be absolutely good a couple things for me you just touched on um get away from the roads yes and you, and i want to clarify that's not because they're not there there might not be birds right next to the road there's places i've hunted in colorado where the birds literally roost within 150 yards of a main road and i've killed birds within 150 yards of the main road don't sit in your car or your truck with an owl hooter or a box call, with your truck, you know, drive down the road, turn the truck off, open the door, or call, 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 and try to get a response. I've literally sat watching birds. I'm actively working a group of birds. We're only two to three hundred yards off the road, and you can hear the truck. And they get out. They they turn their vehicle off. I've had people not even turn the vehicle off, but they'll, <laughs> you, they'll stop open the door maybe they slam the door closed but they just open the door all of a sudden within seconds the birds are standing there looking they're like nope they don't say a word the truck drives off meanwhile they're they're strutting gobbling doing it i cannot tell you how many times creep into a spot turn your truck off close it quietly walk a couple hundred yards down the finger ridge and then try your locating, you know, whether you're doing a locator call or whether you're using, a, uh, you know, just Yelps with a box call or whatever. Get yourself into places where the turkeys are likely going to be and where most people are not. You, that bird might be sitting 100 yards from the road, but if you try calling from the road, they are edgy. If you're talking about public land birds, they're educated to that stuff. By just coming in from an opposite direction, or just coming from an opposite direction. Maybe you park on this one particular finger ridge you walk down that finger ridge, cross a little valley, come up on the other finger ridge, and you call from there. That bird might be 300 yards from your truck or 200 yards from your truck, but because he heard you from a new and unique direction, he's more likely to gobble. So, yeah, get yourself away from the roads and be creative with it. Um, the other thing, you, and you mentioned this earlier, too, uh, prospecting. Walk those ridges, call, and just cover ground because, especially in terrain, you may not be able to hear them in one particular little valley or canyon until you get right up on top of them, all right? So cover ground. And then one of the other things, too, that people don't think about is, in some of these areas where there's Merriams, if it's mountainous, you down low, you may not have snow. And then as you drive up the mountain, you engage, you, you run into snow. And all of a sudden, you can't drive up anymore or whatever. You say, okay, well, I'm going to start hunting here. Well... Don't overlook the fact that up on top of the mountain, where it's windblown and where you might and where the sun has been shining, you might actually have less snow or no snow. You may be in a where you're driving up, coming up the mountain, you may be going through a patch of timber where the snow is drifted in and it's all shaded in and the snow is lingering, but beyond that snow zone, might be open those birds will absolutely go up there so throw some snowshoes on or get a snowmobile or whatever and maybe if you can get yourself past that snow zone you're going to get yourself past all the other hunters i know of a couple of places where if you can do that you actually have access to hundreds of birds and you might be the only one there so yeah when you say get away from the roads don't overlook Maybe further in and up on top and over that mountain might be a little barren. Those birds can get there. They know where it is. They're going to follow that spring green up. Go after them. The question here says, in the Midwest, I could drive around and
0: spot turkeys in a field, which gave me a general area to start my scouting with. Uh, With there not being many fields in the mountains, what's a tactic to get an area to let's see, what's a tactic to get where I can cover a lot of ground and get me in the general area of turkeys? So it sounds like he's a Midwest hunter that's relocated, or maybe he's just he doesn't know where to start, where his tactic in the Midwest is he drives around and glasses the open field. He finds the birds and then watches where they go roost in mountainous, forested terrain where you don't have that luxury sometimes. Uh, I would say, like we were just talking, find those areas of roadless where there's, you know, not a lot of roads, maybe where you have roads on four sides, but there's, you know, three or four miles in between where you can get in there and, and if you've got a one predominant ridge line where you can get up and listen off of both sides covering country and spend two or three hours walking that entire ridge looking for scratchings on that ridge uh you know, walk it from one side to the other looking for track and listening off both sides. The other thing is potentially uh, finding those areas that are deep within your unit, even if it has roads. Sometimes the areas that are closest to town get hit the hardest. Uh, sometimes those areas closest to the best camping areas get hit the hardest. But if you can get away from that a little bit and get out and just drive and stop and listen and sit, you know, just, Turn your truck off, get out of your truck, walk 100 yards, and just sit with your back to a tree and listen for 20, 30 minutes. See if you hear any distant gobbling, and just repeat that. Um, you know, if you can't see them, you got to hear them, or you've got to see their sign that they've been there. Other thing is, uh, especially out west, is check those water sources, whether it be, you know, uh, dirt tanks, uh, windmills, look for where they're watering, because, you know, states like Arizona where there's not huge abundance of water, uh, you know, you can see that they're going to come to those uh, dirt tanks uh, every day. Turkeys need water every day. Uh, You know, on a year like this, when it's really wet, it's going to be harder. On years like last year where very few tanks had water, well, those birds were all congregated around
1: the only water sources. Chris? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, All that and everything that we've talked about so far, everything that's in that seven-part series, all absolutely comes into play. Um, The other thing that I would just say, um, because you said, uh, you you, kind of touched on it there with your answer about, you know, when they're talking and and you want to hear them. Keep in mind, most places where you're talking about hunting merriams has some semblance of a mountainous somewhat, some semblance of a mountainous terrain. Depending on where you're going to go after Merriam's, which, you know, depending on what state and what elevation you are and what the terrain is, you might be dealing with snow and and you might be dealing with a season that starts a little bit different than like us us here in Kansas or Nebraska or, you know, say the eastern part of Nebraska. Um, I guess what what I'm getting at is, our, like, for instance, Midwest guys – gals our season starts maybe say april 1st or nebraska archery season starts march 25th and we can get out there and the birds are gobbling they're going crazy uh and we can catch them at different stages of when they are you know busting up and, and when they're vocal but if you think about when you go to say colorado and want to hunt merriam's then you know say opening weekend say that it starts on april 12th or april 14th or whatever understand you are going to be dealing with a bird that's a little bit maybe in a different behavioral cycle than the birds that you just left from your home state. A lot of times with Merriams, what I found, if I wanted to hunt them opening weekend, which I did a lot, most of the time I was hunting them in snow, and most of the time it was, and they, they would definitely talk, but they did not talk excessively, and the reason why I was successful is because I knew where they were. I knew where the, where they wanted to be. I knew where they were going to uh, roost. And I, I really had good information from a uh, pre-scouting or scouting uh, scenario. If you're going to go out and you're going to say, guess what? I, I live in Kansas or I live in Nebraska or somewhere else. And I say, man, I want to go on a, um, a Western States uh, Marion hunt. I might suggest folks consider going if it's going to be mountain, maybe think about going towards the end of April, maybe even into the beginning of May. That's when you start getting those birds. There now they they might not be locked down with those hens. You got hens starting to go off to off to the nest, to where you've got some birds that are a little bit more vocal. You may find you have a better chance at pro- midday prospecting and running ridges and getting responses. Then you do say opening weekend. So keep that in mind. Things happen in many mountainous Merriam's habitats a few weeks later than what they do in Midwest Rio Grande habitats. If that makes sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our birds out here are definitely a couple weeks uh, later than your birds. You know, your your birds are firing April 1st. Our birds are you know yeah. they don't really get cranked up till maybe the end of the second week or third week of April. What's the latest the birds leave the roost in the morning? This comes from AZ Bassman. What's the latest the birds leave the roost in the morning? Well, I would answer that that if you get a snowstorm, sometimes as Chris was saying, you get these spring snows. I've seen them stay in the tree for a couple of hours. So in other words, don't be surprised if you're if guys listening or going up to the san carlos or or hunting the white mountain or or you know even colorado or utah for that matter and you get an overnight snowstorm do not be surprised if those birds if you have them roosted uh if they stay in the tree for an hour you know 30 minutes an hour two hours sometimes they won't even gobble and they'll you'll just be able to glass them you know they're there and they're up there and they're basically their heads under their wing and they're they're just trying to dry their wings and they're not going to fly down. Generally, I would say that birds around these parts, around 4.30 a.m. is when you can expect them to be gobbling. So we talk about prospecting birds, driving and listening, uh, walking ridgelines and listening. Yes, I've heard them before 4.30, but between 4.30 and 5 seems to be the magical time when the the woods just light up. And, of course, the closer you get to 5 o'clock uh, a.m., and and I'm kind of talking Arizona time, just talking my general experience with Miriam, between 4.30 and 5 is when, and the closer you get to 5 is when, you can hear the most uh, gobbling action. And then it seems like, obviously, earlier in the season it gets light later, or excuse me, earlier. Um, and then as the season pro- progresses, it's gonna start getting light what am I trying to say, Chris? It's getting light yeah, yeah. Earlier, earlier in the, earlier in the season you go. So every day, so you you know, the middle of May it's gonna be light, you know, twenty or thirty minutes earlier than it is April fifteenth. But yeah, what easily, I can say yeah. is around that five generally around that five ten mark 510 to 520 it seems like that's when birds
1: hit the ground uh curious your thoughts chris yeah it it absolutely i mean there's i think you nailed it if if it's inclement weather uh if they feel if they're worried about safety uh on the ground meaning if there's predators around or if they they think there's predator around they hear you down below the roost thinking around sometimes that's going to delay them up in the tree because they're, they're not going to pitch out until they can absolutely see typically rule of thumb for me is about the time that i can start to see well enough out a couple hundred yards the birds are too and that's when they typically pitch out but i have literally seen the other day we yesterday we went to go uh recover um my last hunter's bird just to try to find it that one hen that was in that area she was on the the roost goodness gracious the sun had been up for probably 30 minutes i mean above the horizon for 30 minutes she was still on the roost just hanging out looking probably because of all the disturbance that was in there the night before she just wanted to make sure goodness gracious i'm not pitching out here with no one else around and all this disturbance i want to make sure i'm safe so she pitched out extremely late in new york i've had birds sit up on the tippy tippy tops of those trees Until like eight o'clock in the morning, I'm like, "What are you doing up there?" So it all depends on the bird and how safe they feel in pitching out. But the other thing too, I've seen birds, I've seen birds actually pitch out on the ground, you know, strut, do their thing, and then gobblers fly back up into the tree simply because they want to get a vantage point where they can see and look and scan for hens, and they can gobble and strut and, and broadcast themselves out a little bit better. So. In a, on average, it, they're going to pitch out as soon as you can see well, you know, somewhat effectively on the landscape. But yeah, weather is going to can delay them, and the threat of potential predation is going to delay them. So you just got to, if you're going to get in there and be close to the roost, you're just going to have to be flexible and just let things unfold and play out. Got another question
0: here. What time do they typically come into water? Well, that's kind of a hard question because I've seen them literally fly off the roost and go straight to water. I've seen them do it at, you know, 8, 9 o'clock. I've seen them do it at dead noon. How many times I've been driving back to camp and at dead noon you drive by a water hole and there's a flock of turkeys on the water. Um, One thing I can tell you is I've seen them a lot of times right before they go to fly up uh, into the roost. Uh, you know, late afternoon, late evening, I've seen them hit water. So, uh, you know, Chris may have an idea of when he thinks uh, birds or when he knows birds are more active to water, but I would say all day long. I've seen every scenario, and I don't think I've ever seen a pattern. Uh, You know, obviously, if it's hot, uh, they might visit a couple times a day. Uh, If it's hot, they're certainly in the middle of the day. They might, you know, spend quite a bit of time around water, And that goes back to Chris's thing about water holes and shade, and they'll just kind of loaf in the shade. They'll go over, get a little drink of water, go back over, start feeding in the shade, go back over and get a drink of water. So I think temperature has a little bit to do with it as well.
1: Yeah, and and I think species has something to do with it as well because where you're talking – you know, you're talking Merriam's in some really brutal dry habitats. Water's going to be key. For me out here, yeah, we have water all over the place, and if, and if a turkey goes down and gets a drink, I mean, they can do that any time during the day. But quite honestly, if they're out there feeding on winter wheat and worms and snails and grubs and other juicy, wet type of items, they don't even need to go get free water. They get plenty of water from the stuff that they're eating. So, And if you're in and around hunting birds that are on you know, fermariums that are in the mountains that are hunting on the fringe edges of snowmelt. The best green up oftentimes is within striking distance of snow. And there may be a, a wide open south facing slope that is all greening up and, and there's no free water on it, but you just go right across the creek onto that north facing slope and there's snow in there. Well, shoot! They can get they can get water from snowmelt. They can get water from eating snow, and and they can get the water from the vegetation they're eating. So, I think you really got to focus on what type of birds are you hunting. If you're hunting in arid environments where the vast majority of, of food that those birds are eating are very dry seeds and nuts and that type of stuff, and you know, then then okay, maybe water becomes a much bigger issue. But some of these areas where I'm at or mountains. You know, I never even really focused on what time they were getting water. I just wanted to make sure water was available.
0: Another question here, what's too much calling or not enough while they're typically coming in? Well, my answer would be if they're coming in and you have visual on them and you can see them actively working towards you and they're on the move, I'm probably not going to call. It's fun to call and watch them gobble. It's fun to call and watch them, you know, pick up their pace and run. But I've also seen where you call and they, it actually stops them and they stand there and strut. So I would say if they're coming and you see them coming, I would not call. That's, that's my opinion. If you hear them and they've closed the distance and they're coming, you can just tell they're coming to the location. Let's say you've called they gobbled way off, you called again, they gobbled and they're closer, you can't see them, but they're closer, they're closer, they're closer. Again, I'm probably going to do the same thing. I'm probably going to let them just continue until I think that they've, you know, stopped and then I've got to do something. If you're trying to kill that bird and you know he's coming to you, I probably would stop.
1: Chris? Yeah, one of the my... I mean, I say this all the time with my taglines is I I never call more than I have to. Uh, well, I'll always call as much as I need to, but I never call more than I have to. Um, and I think the other thing, too, what you just said is absolutely great advice. And, and the other thing that I would add to it and say it depends also what, what I'm saying and the strategy of I'm employing, meaning if I'm, calling and i'm i'm out there and i'm trying to prospect and i'm 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 using you know for say a string of lost yelps long strings of high pitched you know loud yelps you know where are you where are you where are you you're you're simulating a hen that she's out there looking for someone and you get a gobble i'm going to start moving up in that direction and i'm going to probably maintain continuity of that for a little bit but as that bird starts getting in close like you said, if that bird is, is closing distance and starting to come, then I'm going to back that off a little bit, and then the closer he gets, I want him to try to seek me out, and so I'm going I'm to really slow down my calling and, and, and maybe just go quiet altogether. If, however, um, I'm just maybe calling to a bird or a group of birds, and I'm just pretending to be a group of birds just loafing, say it's a midday hunt, I'm in a shady spot, ground blind with some folks, and and I know there should be birds around me somewhere. I've got the decoys set out, and I'm just going to do some yelps and clucks and purrs, and I'm going to sound like a group of hens just hanging out, and I get a bird to respond. Well, if he responded because he he heard all those loafing-type sounds, and, yeah, I'm going to throw some yelps in there to engage that, Tom, and say, hey, yep, we're over here, we want you to be a part of our group, I'm going to probably maintain continuity of whatever it was that got him interested in the first place. If he was interested in hens that were just milling around doing their own thing, well then I'm going to keep sounding like a group of hens milling around doing their own thing. If so, it, I I kind of I guess the easiest way to to say this is use that bird in their interest in their level of moving towards you quickly or not as kind of the, the litmus test or the, you know, People say all the time, you know, take their temperature. You know, if that bird's fired up and cranking, you probably don't need to do as much. But if they are just, just take their time, then maybe if he likes what I'm giving to him, well, maybe I step it up a little bit and I just keep giving it to him. But yeah, I, I will always call as much as I need to, but I will never call any more. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I'm never going to call more than I have to. I got several questions here. It uh,
0: sounds like guys going up to the San Carlos Indian Reservation turkey hunting this weekend, so I'll, I'll try and answer them both. Uh, San Carlos turkey hunting this weekend, best piece of advice for a no nothing turkey hunter. So, Chris, uh, San Carlos, they're talking Merriam's turkeys. Uh, oh, yeah. A couple yeah. things that I would say. Um, never, you know, a know-nothing turkey hunter, Self, self-proclaimed no nothing turkey hunter, Uh, doesn't know the San Carlos either, either, well, you can't go in with too high of expectations. If you didn't go up there scouting at all, you've never been to the San Carlos and you don't know anything about turkeys. The good news is you're getting out and you're going. So what I would probably do is try and camp in an area twofold, either camp in an area that you can access a ton of different country and kind of drive on the San Carlos, whether, you know, you've got You've got Eagle Creek, you've got Point of Pines, you've got Dry Lake, you've got Hilltop. Uh, you, you know, there's, it's a huge reservation. So either camp in an area that you can go and spread out and go drive a bunch of different roads and have access or go the exact opposite and pick some corner of the unit or some part of the unit and just say, this looks good on a map. I've heard this area is good. I'm just going to focus right here in this core area and, you know, really, really try and learn what I can about this area. If you've never been to the San Carlos, you know, half the fun of it is seeing all the different varying types of terrain. Um, one thing I would tell you is don't disregard the areas of the San Carlos that are the pinion juniper country and not the big, you know, there's some great turkey hunting in the pinyon juniper country where the big ponderosa pines are not prevalent. Find those areas where you've got the big open, you know, grass prairies, you've got the pinyon juniper, and then inside the canyons, the little stringer draws, you've got the pine trees. That's where the turkeys will be roosted. And a lot of times, just by eliminating that by driving and realizing, okay, there's not any pines anywhere around here, okay, I found a canyon with a stringer of pines, a lot of times you can say, yep, that birds are going to be in that canyon, and sure enough, that's where they're at. Um, You know, you can access from Globe. You can stay on the west side and go up to the hilltop area. Uh, You can go uh, past the San Carlos Game and Fish Office and access the Dry Lake, the Point of Pines area. You can go to the far east side over there by Eagle Creek. I mean, there's literally birds on all corners of that reservation. I've hunted it for years. Um, And I would recommend going to the areas that are longer to get into, further to get into, not as easy to get into. And the further that you can get off the beaten path, again, just like hunting public land merriams, the further you can get off the beaten path, Uh, probably the better chance you have to find birds that have not been messed with as well as drive off the beaten path and then walk off the beaten path find country that's out in the middle of absolute nowhere um you're probably going to have a better hunt chris any you you haven't been to the san carlos but anything else you want to add there no that was awesome (laughs)
1: Okay. <laughs> no, it, uh, all the other all the other stuff that we talked about with Miriam's is gonna is gonna fit with that. So I think your relevant information of actually being there. Then no, that's that's the best way. To, yeah, it was good. Let's let's uh,
0: two more questions here. What is the best strategy when hunting turkeys in the middle of the day,
1: Chris? Well, it depends on the temperature because um, I think you said it, we, we talked about this just a second ago. If it's you know, and and I think, well, we could take that. We could handle that question here separately. But, but in general, most of the time, if you're hunting turkeys and it's nice weather, meaning it's sunny, then it might be windy. Most of the time, I'm going to find birds in shady pockets. If you think about turkeys, they don't have any place to be. They live there. They're, they're just there. So. They fly down, they're, they're strutting, they're feeding, they're chasing each other around, they're beating each other up in the morning, blah, blah, blah. But as the day goes on, at some point, they just they just, they just just end up loafing. And so most of the time, in my experience, they're going to loaf in those places. If it's nice weather and sunny, most of the time they're going to be loafing somewhere where they can get shade. You think about how, especially goblins, big black ball with a bunch of fat on them, they're just going to, they just soak up heat and they're going to get hot. And so they end up standing around loafing in the shady little pockets. So if that's the case, if it's midday, then I'm going to make sure I'm in and around some of those shadier pockets of habitat. If it's super, super windy, then they're going to want to get out of the wind. And so I'm going to find those places where it's not only shady, but it's also out of the wind. That is, unless it's Cold and miserable and windy, then I'm going to find those places that's out of the wind but actually in the sun. Does that make sense? I mean, you you touched on it earlier. You know, if it's cold and nasty, they're going to want to warm up. Or if it's been rainy and cold, and all of a sudden the day breaks and it, and it turns sunny, they're going to want to dry those feathers up. They're going to go to that sunny, protected little spot where they can sit there, fluff up, preen their feathers, dry out, soak up some heat. So it all depends on what the temperature and and, uh, the weather has been. But by and large, midday areas, I'm going to be in those loafing areas back in some sort of cover. It says, uh, what's your strategy for mornings
0: after a snowstorm or a big cold front? There you go.
1: Go for it. I'll let you start first.
0: I'm going to say, again, like I've seen birds stay up in the roost after a snowstorm. Uh, Cold fronts typically... Uh, low pressure systems, the birds get finicky. It seems like they clam up, seems like they don't gobble as well. I found that high pressure, you know, good bluebird type days, especially out here out west, uh, the birds seem to be in a more consistent pattern and rhythm. Um, you know, normally when it's really, really cold uh, after a snowstorm or a big cold front, uh, typically I see them not being as active up in the roost making a bunch of noise but that's when maybe I'll focus towards some of the midday stuff where they're going to try and get out there and get in some of those strutting areas Uh, because a lot of times they'll kind of hunker in these storms. Uh, You know, they live in it every day, so it's really not that big of a deal to them. Uh, But, you know, maybe they've lost touch with uh, some of their other turkey buddies and what have you. So I, I see midday, you know, find those strutting areas, those open areas where they like to go and congregate where gobblers like to go and try and find hens, Um, and uh, Chris, you got anything
1: to add? Yeah, so exactly, yeah, if that storm breaks, um, and that's the question, if it breaks and the weather turns nice, oh, my goodness, yes, I'm going to find those They're going to want to get some warmth in them. They're going to want to dry out, and they're going to want food. So if I'm hunting in the morning, I'm going right to where their food where Where can they go and get food? right off the bat because like right now in this weather that we've got most of those birds probably not getting up they're not going to be standing out in the open cornfields just getting pummeled they're probably going to be back in some protected spots maybe nibbling on a few native grass seeds or or seeds that fell from the trees or whatever but as soon as that weather breaks they're going to want to just get some food in them and dry out and warm up so i'm going to absolutely find those if it's still windy i'm going to find those protected pockets but I want to know where the food is and where they're, they're going to go there, and then they're going to want to spend some time out in the sun warming up, and that's where I'm going to make sure I'm set up. One
0: more question here,
1: Chris, and then we're done
0: uh, with the Q&A for a while. Uh, best time methods to locate birds in an area you've never hunted with one day to scout? If I only had one day to scout, I would, spend before, I would get up uh, and be driving at 4.15 in the morning, and I would be fully expecting birds to be gobbling from about 4.30 to about 5.10, so I'm going to want to cover country in the vehicle. I'm going to stop, turn the headlights off, try and get out as quietly as I can, and I'm going to use a coyote howler. I prefer to use, it's a three-in-one, it's a a purple-colored Primos, I believe it's a woodpecker, a peacock, and a coyote howler, uh, and I'm going to give, you know, a short burst uh, of, of a coyote howl, and I'm going to listen for a bird to shock. I'm going to stand there for maybe 60 seconds after that. I'm going to hit it one more time. If nothing answers, I'm going to drive about a mile down the road. I'm going to do the same thing. If I have someone with me, I'm going to have them stand off, 30 or 40 yards because the initial blast of the coyote howler can be loud. I'm going to have them stand to the side so they can hear better than the, than the guy blowing the call. And I'm going to do that for, you know, an hour before while they're still in the tree, I'm going to try and locate as many birds as I can. I'm going to say, okay, there was one bird here. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. There was two birds here. Okay. There was four. There's a big group of birds here. So that's what I'm going to do the day before if I only have one day to scout. Once they fly down, so once it gets light, then I'm actually going to either do two things. I'm either going to go to a spot and get out and sit and listen or walk a ridge line for about an hour trying where I can listen off both sides or I'm going to drive down the road using the same method driving, but I'm going to shorten my distance up. I'm probably going to go a half mile. I'm going to get out and I'm going to listen for like five minutes. Listen for gobbles. I'm probably not going to try and call or do anything. I'm just going to listen for inadvertent gobbles. I'm going to mark that on my Onyx maps and I'm just going to keep going. Then once it's kind of mid-morning, let's say 7.38, 9 o'clock, I'm going to actually go check the water sources, especially if it's dry I'm going to check water sources for tracks. I'm going to check roads, two-track roads for tracks. I'm going to try and find as much sign as I can. I'm going I'm to do that throughout the whole day. Then I'm going to try and go back that afternoon and be in some of those areas that I marked on my Onyx map, and I'm going to try and probably not call a lot because I'm scouting. I'm probably going to try and say, well, I know there was you know, one bird here, and there was two birds down the canyon, and then I heard a clump of birds. I'm probably going to try and get as close to that clump of birds that I heard that morning, and I'm just going to sit with my back up against the tree, and I'm going to listen. And my whole goal is going to be to try and roost that group of birds. Um, And if I have a buddy, I'm going to put my buddy on the other birds we heard, I'm not going to call to the birds. I'm just going to sit and observe, and my whole goal is try and roost those birds so you know exactly which tree they're in for the next morning.
1: Chris? Exactly. Uh, a couple points I, I just want to stress. You said it. Um, number one, if you're preseason scout, if you're just scouting and you're not going to hunt, resist, resist, resist the urge to turkey call. Don't be out there yapping on in uh, my opinion. The more you call prior to a hunt, the more you're going to educate those birds. Because if you think about it, if you, if you get him to respond and he responds, you're like, sweet, okay, I've got to go find the other And that bird, over the next couple hours, moves your way to try to find that hen or whatever he just heard, and he doesn't find one. Well, then the next time he comes out there and hears you particularly call, he may be less interested to sound off because you're like, well, that, that, that didn't work out last time. So... You can educate birds the more you call to them without hunting them. So I never call trying to just prospect. I, I do like using locator calls, and what you said about locator calls is absolutely on point. If you are with someone, have them stand 50, 60, 80 yards away, or whatever. have them stand off to the side or, or away from you, so that way, if a bird does gobble while you're blowing it, or your ears are still still ringing, you can he- your buddy can hear it. And then also by setting yourselves apart a little bit, it's easier for you to triangulate and get a better location of where that is because you're both going to perceive it a little bit differently. But once you powwow, you might say you both might say, "Okay, yes, it sounded like it could have come off from that particular point." Well, now. Two of you said that, so it's probably that's where that bird was. If you're by yourself, resist the urge to do those long, drawn-out coyote howls or those long, drawn-out owl hoots or whatever or long, you know, long strings of crow calls because while you're blowing on that and that bird gobbles, you're never going to hear it. So if I'm trying to locate by myself with a coyote howler, it's going to be a high pitch, just a real short, high-pitched, loud howl. Whee- done or if it's a crow call i'm going to do an alarmed crow call where it's just that pop 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 and just let it go out just super loud super raspy and just short first. pop 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 and just try to and then let it settle to where your ears can hear that bird respond don't be out there just going and just going that bird to gobble right when you're blowing you'll never hear them Good stuff. Chris, I'm looking forward
0: to Gould's turkey season. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Chris is uh, coming down and guiding uh, with us down, uh, Gould's Turkey gouldsturkeyhunt.com uh, is, our, is our business name down there. And I'm um, looking forward. You've got a handful of trips as well as I do. Dar does. Hunter does. Uh, we're going to have a great Gould's turkey season. If you guys are interested in hunting Gould's turkeys, uh, next year uh, in, in the 2020 spring season, uh, send me an email at jscottoutdoors@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can also uh, check out more information gouldsturkeyhunt.com, Gould's turkey hunt on Facebook and Gould's Turkey hunt on Instagram. Uh, also Chris, I uh, want to wish you well with the rest of your Kansas season. Uh, hope you guys knock down some birds if you guys are interested in, hunting birds next season uh, with Chris Rowe uh, in Kansas. Uh, Please get a hold of Chris. And uh, as always, Chris, I love having you on. And I'll give you a chance to make sure the listeners know exactly where they can reach out to you, as well as I'll link it up in the show notes.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's always fun. I I enjoy our conversation. So for us, for me anyway, it's it's pretty darn easy. Everything that I do is all under Rowe Hunting Resources. That's R-O-E, Hunting Resources. The website is just throw a .com on that, on YouTube, it's at Row Hunting Resources, Instagram, it's Row Hunting Resources, and I do, I, I, I would truly encourage people, if you like this type of stuff, um, I do quite a bit now, and I'm going to be doing a bunch more on Instagram, so go over there, give it a follow, and, and follow along, and you're welcome to ask me questions and that type of stuff as well, but yeah, I'm pretty easy to find uh but yeah as always brother i've asked anytime you want to have me on uh, let's let's do it and i am too we're we're getting it's coming up pretty darn quick i'm going to be seeing here what in less than two weeks isn't it
0: yeah i'm ready to get some gould's turkey on the ground i know um you were out uh uh, not last season but the season before and uh, had a ball and got some great video so uh this will this will wet your whistle for gould's turkey for sure and i'm excited to have you out i know the hunters are excited to hunt with you uh so let's have a great season and uh, thanks as always for sharing your information
1: awesome no anytime anytime see you soon
0: all right buddy watch out for those bomb cyclones take cover (laughs) yeah got it thanks (laughs) all right buddy bye